Okay, we're reading from Matthew chapter 1, uh, starting at verse 18, going through to 25, and it's uh, entitled, The Birth of Jesus Christ. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call him his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophets. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Go further reading. As I mentioned to begin, we're going to look at, over these next few weeks, some of the prophecies that we read about that we see fulfilled in the coming of Jesus, that are fulfilled as we come to Christmas. What's incredible, actually, when you come to Christmas time and you look at all of the passages that you read about what takes place at Christmas is that there are, in fact, very few of them. There's not a whole lot of information that is given to us. And so I wonder then, with only a few passages, and I wonder if, having read it so, so, so many times over before, what impact it has on you still. Like Michael's read these words. What impact does it have on you? Is it wonderful news of great joy for all the world? Or is it just a Christmas story? Is Jesus coming, born, Mary and Joseph, virgin birth, stable, Jesus, move on? What is it? See, I was thinking how over time there are things which perhaps we have experienced or maybe places we would go to and things that we would see, beautiful scenery, amazing views, which at first when we've experienced these things, seen these places and sights, have made us go, wow, that is extraordinary. We're filled with awe and wonder and amazement. Maybe we're moved some way to tears because we're like, this is incredible. Look at what I'm seeing here. And yet, over time, you go back to the same places. You experience the same thing, and does it have that same impact as it did have at first? My in-laws live up on the central coast in Avoca Beach, and some years ago they bought an old shack of a house which had the most incredible view right down onto the beach. And I remember going and thinking, wow, 
Imagine waking up to this every morning. This view would just not lose its appeal or its impact. It's wonderful. To be honest, now, I go, and we go and visit them. We'll go again at Christmas. And the first thing I'll do is probably not go out to the balcony and say, wow, look at that view. Isn't it incredible? I've seen it before. And sometimes the beach changes, and sometimes the water's further in, sometimes it's further out. It's just a beach, you know. You're still up high on the same balcony looking out at the same view you've seen many times before. It's pretty good. There's lots of other beaches. I think my in-laws actually do very well to appreciate it. I think they recognize the blessing of God on their life to be where they are and to live and to see as they sit out every day and appreciate it. And so I'm saying what I'm saying, recognizing that for some of us, actually, there will be some things that do not lose their sheen, their gloss, their awe and wonder and amazement. Maybe there are some places you would go back to and keep on going back to and you would find this is still incredible and wonderful. I don't know, maybe there's a song that you used to listen to it used to make you feel a particular way, whether that's a Christian song or not, and you listen to it now and it's just grown a bit old on it. Maybe you've over-listened to it somehow. It doesn't have that same impact it once first had. I think that can happen with things over time. What about Christmas? What about Jesus coming to earth? God incarnate, that means God himself coming to earth. The God and creator of the whole world, leaving the glory of heaven, living a sinless life in perfection, suffering, dying on a cross as an innocent man. For whom? For you. For sinners, for his enemies, for mockers and haters, for the guilty. For you. Have you heard it before? Is it old news? Does it still impact you the same way? Does it still stir your heart and mind and emotions to know that you are a saviour saved, sorry, a sinner saved by grace? Do you long to be refreshed and reminded each day of this good news? A real challenge for us to consider these things and to think them through. And so I want to pray and ask that God would do that and help us this morning. Lord, my prayer is simple, to ask that you stir our hearts and minds, that you refresh us and reveal to us once again how incredible, how wonderful, how marvelous is this good news that we have, that you came from heaven to earth for our sakes, became poor, even though a sinless man you were considered guilty, suffering and dying on a cross. Lord, we say it, we are familiar with it, we know it so well, but Lord, may it never, ever lose its impact. But may it shape our lives each day and all the more as we move forward. Lord, I cannot stir hearts. Only you can. Only you can move us. Only you can give us eyes to see, ears to hear, help us to understand. And I pray that you would do that now, please. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Really what I want us to look at as we consider this passage is primarily the prophecy that we see in verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. The reason to look at that is actually the previous verse, which is what I think, taking these seven or eight verses together, is what this whole little passage hinges on. 
See, verse 22 says, so from 18 to 21, it's described all that will happen, the way it took place. And then in verse 22, it says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. You know, we could spend some time looking at the details, thinking about what actually happened, maybe why it happened. But what I really want to think about is the fact that it just happened exactly the way that God said that it would. In fact, it happened exactly the way that God had planned. Because he had planned this even before eternity, before time began. But he spoke these words of Isaiah chapter 7 that we read in verse 23 hundreds of years before. And so really in dealing with this, I want to ask why. I want you to ask why. Why did God make this prophecy hundreds of years before? Why did he then wait until this time to fulfill it? And why did it have to happen like this? Did it have to happen like this? Maybe you can answer these questions already, but we want to explore them together this morning. And what we'll find, I'm sure, is that we're going to find out much about God, about his character, about his nature, who he is, what he's like. But actually in doing that, we also find out a lot about ourselves. We find out a lot about human beings, what we are like, and why this all took place. And so let me begin by asking, why did God make this prophecy? See, we read it, and we won't have time to read the whole passage this morning. Maybe you'll take a little bit of time later to read it. But the Israelites at this time had split into the two nations, Judah and Israel. And the king of Judah was a man a man named Ahaz. And what was happening at this time was the Syrians and the Israelites had come to Ahaz, the king of Judah, and said, we need to form an alliance. Israel, Judah, Syria, we need to form an alliance because there's a great enemy, and that great enemy is Assyria. A bit confusing, speaking of Assyria and Syria. Okay? And so Israel... And Syria come to Judah and say, come on, let's go together. We can fight against the Assyrians. But Ahaz says no. He'd actually already formed an alliance with Assyria. He was scared of them. They were a huge, expanding empire. And so he'd already sided with them. He'd given them money. He thought, you know what? They are the world power. I'm going to bank on them. And so Syria and Israel come and say, come on, he has, Judah, come on, let's, let's gang together. And he says, no. So Israel and Syria seek to attack Judah. Crazy, God's people, Israel and Judah, now two separate kingdoms, and one are ready to attack the other. And so the people of Judah at this time are fearful. They're fearful because Syria and Israel are coming to attack them. And so we read that in Isaiah chapter 7. It's well worth reading the whole chapter and trying to understand what is going on. Isaiah speaks on behalf of God to Ahaz and says, Do not be afraid. All of these kingdoms will be wiped out. 
all of them. Israel will go. Syria will go. Assyria will go. But you will be left. Because you're God's people. And so then we read in verse 9 of Isaiah 7. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. God is saying, trust me. I know you're fearful of enemies, of attacking nations, but trust in me. Come inside with me. Put your faith and trust in me. Do not put your trust in other countries, other people, other kings. Put your trust in me. And in verse 10, the Lord speaks to Ahaz and he says, asks for a sign of the Lord your God. But Ahaz says, I will not. He doesn't need a sign from God. God is saying, ask for a sign to show that I can be trusted, to show that you need to put your faith in me and that I will rescue you from all these other nations. And Ahaz says, no, I'm not going to do that. Why? Because he's made an alliance with Assyria. He's fairly confident that Assyria, being the largest world power, are actually going to be able to destroy everyone before them. He doesn't need to put the Lord to the test. He doesn't need to ask for a sign. They'll be all right. But God has said, if you're not firm in faith, then you will not be firm at all. You need to trust me. You need to follow me. And so then, God speaking through Isaiah says, you are wearying men and you are wearying God. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. I think it's important that we understand the context. I think it's important that we understand where this prophecy is coming out of. And he has his response and reaction to this word of prophecy. God is coming to him, and this is what he's essentially saying. Ahaz, Judah, God's people, I see you. I see you, and I care. I know what's going on. I know what you need. And let me tell you, it's not an alliance with the biggest world power. You need faith. You need faith in me. That is how you will stand. That is how you can be saved. Do you trust me? And he says, I don't don't need a sign. I'll be okay. What God says happens and all the other kingdoms are wiped out. But Judah themselves are taken into exile and only a remnant are left. God says to Ahaz, trust in me. Do you trust in me? Do you trust in my word? That I alone can save you? Do you trust that I see you and that I care? Because that's where this prophecy comes. And I think it stands in true today for you and for me. God sees you. He sees you. He cares. And the question is whether or not you will put your faith and your trust in him. Take him at his word so that you might be saved. 
He says to Ahaz, I will send a sign. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, shall call his name Emmanuel. He makes this prophecy to them at that time to prove that he is faithful and trustworthy and to challenge them. But why? Why does he speak of a virgin conceiving and bearing a son? Why is God going to come and be with us? Well, I'm sure if you're a Christian here, then you understand, you're familiar with what the Bible tells us about our sin. That's why we started as we did, that we do not become blasé, we do not become so familiar that we tune out, do not listen. God made man in his image to be like him and to be with him forever. But sin has destroyed that. Human beings are not interested in God. They're dissatisfied with God, angry with God, do not believe in God. They do not want to make him God of their lives. They do not want to follow him. They want to go their own way, do their own thing. They want to have their priorities instead of God's priorities in life. They want to seek good in other things apart from in God alone. And the result is that we're lost. Completely lost. Cut off from God with no way of getting back. In the New Testament, it's described as the domain, the domain of darkness. A domain meaning you're under the rule, under the reign of, not able to get out of the kingdom of darkness because of sin. Except we have Jesus. Except that God sees and God cares and he has done something about it. Why do we have this prophecy? Because God saw you. And he knows you and he knows your deepest, greatest need is to be forgiven. And so he says, I'm going to send a saviour. I myself am going to come to earth to save all those who receive me. To save all those who trust in my word, who put their faith in me. That's why we have this prophecy. Because we need it. You need it. You need a saviour. I hope that's not old news. I hope that's not bog standard, basic, average information. I don't think it is because you're here. Suggests that it's changed your life, in fact. But we need to be reminded of it, refreshed by it every day. When we read in Matthew the story of Jesus' birth, it's a story of why God did this. Because you and I are sinners who need a saviour. And so centuries before God prophesies, because he knew exactly what we needed, because he sees and he cares, and he knows who you are. And so he comes. Jesus comes. And so asking why there's the prophecy, we ask, well, why? Not why did he come, we know, we've discussed that, but why did he wait until he did to come? Why then? Why not just immediately with King Ahaz being threatened by Syria and Israel, with us, Syria, who knows whether they'll stick to their alliance, why not come then? Why not rescue them? Well, because it wasn't a physical rescue they needed. They needed rescued far more deeply than that. They needed rescued from their sin. 
And everything that God was doing and saying through Isaiah at that time pointed forward to Jesus. Why was it exactly 2,000 years ago? I don't know that we can say, except that God had been working all things together in history so that, as we realize and read in Romans 5 verse 6, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Savior was needed still is needed for all people. And at just the right time, God sent Jesus. This was God's chosen moment in history. And one of many prophecies which were fulfilled. Maybe he waited till then until everything could be fulfilled. The birth in Bethlehem. The king who would come and destroy the children and cause them to flee to Egypt. It was all God's bringing together perfectly in time and history. All that would happen so that his word would be fulfilled. Exactly as he said. Why exactly that moment we can throw some ideas around. But what we can definitely say is this. God was and always has been in control of all of human history. Jesus being born in Bethlehem at the time he did. That was always God's plan. Listen, there was no plan B. Jesus coming when he did, the way he did, was also not a response of God to something out of his control. Like, this has really gotten out of hand. We really better do something about this. You know what? It's no easy way of doing this, so you know what? Why don't I send a baby? It doesn't matter where he's born in a manger. Let's just do it. You need to do something. That's not what happened. What happened is exactly what God had planned to happen. This was his first choice. This was his plan from the very beginning. No plan B. No making it up on the spot. When I worked at Teen Ranch, I had responsibility for all of the children. So that was about 66 children and upwards of 40 staff. Scotland's an unpredictable country. Some of you have been there and you might know exactly what I mean. You can plan many events outside, but unless you're prepared for going outside, you might never get outside. And so often, we had a hundred or more children and volunteers ready to go. I'm standing on the front step, all looking at me, hanging on my every word, just like this morning. And the heavens open. And it's only Monday and you've still got five days to go and you say, who cares? They've got plenty of clothes. You know they've not got plenty of clothes. You know the boys are going to wear the same clothes all week, even if they're wet. What do you do? At that moment, you think, Renan, we better go inside. Complete change of plan. Think of something else. What everyone is expecting needs to change in an instant. I need to tell everybody what they were thinking they were going to do, they're no longer going to do, and this is what they're going to do, and I've got a very short length of time in which to do it. You have to think on your feet. You have to respond and react to rain being just one of many circumstances. So you can think of other times when you've had to respond or react to a situation that wasn't going the way that you thought or planned. That's not what's going on here. You want to read it again, go for it. Matthew 1, 18 to 25. This was planned from the very beginning. This is no plan B. This is not thrown together. Like God is out of control, I had no other option God sees, God cares, and God acts. And this is how he had chosen to act. 
from the very, very beginning. Because this had to be the best way, right? Had to be the best way. God's not going to do anything less than perfectly. He's not going to do anything less than as good. He's going to do nothing less than as fully wise. We can read right back in Genesis. After the fall where Adam and Eve sinned, and God speaks to them, and he's speaking to Eve, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Speaking of the devil, it's speaking here of Jesus. It's really the first gospel recognition that we have, that God has got a plan. He's going to do something. God sees and he cares and he's going to do something about it. Even right back in Genesis, God knew what he was going to do. He's not powerless. He's not indifferent. In 1 Peter, chapter 1 and verse 20, we read this. He was foreknown, that is Jesus, it speaks about him in verse 19. Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. This was God's plan before even the world was created. He knows what he's doing, and he has the power to do it. When we read in Ephesians 1, 3-5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. We were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. That means that God, that Jesus himself existed before the creation of the world, and that God knew he was going to send Jesus before the creation of the world. It's clear, it's obvious. God knows exactly what he's doing. He sees, he cares, and he acts. And this was always his plan. Always his plan. We're not quite finished, but here's the conclusion. It was all for you. It was all for you. Why did it happen when it did? Because you needed a saviour. A virgin birth, a stable, Bethlehem, Emmanuel, a saviour. It was all for you. It was all for you. That's why. That's why. God knew even before you were born that you would need a saviour. He saw that. He cared. And he acted by sending Jesus. This is your God. He's incredible. Nothing is impossible for him. No plan B, no panic, no scrambling to make a plan. He knew what he was doing. And so the final thing we ask, the final question is, well, why like this? He gave us the prophecy to point towards Jesus because we needed a savior. It happened at that time because God's plan is perfect. Because he knows what he's doing and he's in control. So it happened exactly as he said. But why like this? Could there have been another way? Some aspects, maybe. But we just said, God is all wise. Sees the end from the beginning. He's good. So his way must be perfect. It must be good. It must be wise. 
Why are we told the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call him Emmanuel? Why did it need to be Emmanuel? Why did it have to be God who came? Why did it have to be a virgin birth? Do you know the answers to that? Have you thought about that? Well, it's verse 21 which really tells us why. It says, She, that is Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. It needed to be God. It needed to be a virgin birth. Because you need saved from your sins. And there was no other way. To think about the virgin birth, maybe a little bit tricky to get our head around a little bit, but it was absolutely necessary for the Christmas story that it happened that way. You see, if Jesus was born of Mary and Joseph, two human beings, then we would say that he came into being at that time. He would not therefore have been eternal. Yet with an earthly mother and the seed of the Holy Spirit, we know that he is from eternity past. Jesus, therefore, is the Son of God. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Two human beings can't come together and create something which is divine because we are sinful. That's why it had to be the virgin birth. That's why it had to be from the Holy Spirit. There is actually debate as to whether Jesus really was born of a virgin. Some think it is not important at all. But I want to try to help you see that it really was. If Jesus was simply born of a woman, he would be a mere man. He would have been born in sin, a sinful man before even birth. How could he then be a savior? God is not going to accept a sinful savior. Sinful saviour can't atone for sins. And so being born of the Holy Spirit, we have a sinless saviour. If you're wondering about who God is, then let me, read, let me have you read this again and understand that Jesus was born of a virgin. You know what that says? That God can do miracles. That nothing is impossible for God. He can even do this. He can even do this. That's incredible. Nothing's impossible for him. In Genesis 18 14, it says, Is anything too hard for the Lord? Nope. Nothing. Nothing's too hard for him. Read the story of Christmas again. Nothing's too hard for him. He can even bring his Savior through an unmarried virgin. That's your God. It had to be a virgin birth because salvation comes from the Lord. Jesus came from two human beings. We would be looking at any other world religion. Salvation comes through a man. It's not the case. Salvation comes from the Lord. There's no man-made way to God. You and I can't get there ourselves. But by nature of Jesus' virgin birth, we have a man who is fully human and fully God. There was no sin in him, therefore. By being fully human, 
he's able to be a substitute for humans. You needed a substitute. Had to be a human. But also you needed a perfect, sinless, spotless lamb. So he had to be divine. He had to be from God. And so we understand then why it had to be this way. This is not an insignificant detail. This is God in all his wisdom and power giving us a saviour. There was no other way. And this is how God chose to do it. The corrupted line from Adam of sin is interrupted with Jesus. Sin will not be passed on because Jesus comes from the Holy Spirit. As God, Jesus could be the perfect sacrifice for sin. So he planned it this way. It is significant and it was necessary that he did so. Being Emmanuel, God with us, when we read in Hebrews 14, we read of a high priest who can sympathize with us. God sees you, he cares, he acts, and he knows exactly what it is that you are going through right now. Will you take him at his word? Will you trust him in your life for what you're going through as you've trusted him in your life for your salvation? Let me finish. This is a familiar passage. We know it well. Maybe one or two details have been opened up a little further this morning. But how does it impact you? Pray that we never grow old of this. Growing up, my little brother went through phases of watching specific movies or TV shows. I used to have a paper round, deliver papers in the morning. I'd come home. He'd be there having his breakfast with a movie on of some sort. He went through the whole Narnia series, by which I mean beginning to end, beginning to end, beginning to end, for maybe we'd go through a six to nine month cycle and then he'd move on to the next one. Then it was Faulty Towers, six to nine months. There's only a limited number of them episodes, but we watched them all. He watched them all. One of his favourites was Home Alone. Classic Christmas movie. All right. Kevin, you know the story. Poor wee boy gets left at home. His parents go off on holiday, not realising they'd not taken him. Kevin gets left behind and gets up to many wonderful and spectacular adventures. Part of Kevin's adventures is that he meets an old homeless lady in the park. He's surrounded by pigeons, she feeds the birds, and as he gets to know her, he discovers that her heart has been broken, and so she's completely shut herself off from other people. And Kevin then tells a story. He says, it's just like this one Christmas when I had asked for roller skates. And I got these roller skates and they were new and they were shiny and they were wonderful and amazing. So I put them back in the box and I put them in the cupboard because I was scared to use them because if I used them, they might get damaged. Maybe they get scuffed, they'd get a little bit dirty and they were just so new and brilliant and wonderful, I didn't want to damage them. So he kept them in the cupboard. And then one day he thought, that's so silly, I need to use these roller skates. And when he went to try them on, it had been so long that they never fitted anymore. You've maybe heard of the phrase, the gift that keeps on giving. Maybe Kevin's roller skates would have been that. Every day he could have put them on, rolled around, had great fun. But he put them in the cupboard, never used them. 
And I use that example in closing to ask how many of us have pushed Jesus to the back of our lives. We say he's at the forefront. We say he's a priority. But when was the last time you embraced the gift? When was the last time you spent time with Jesus? The wonder and the awe and the excitement, the good news, the impact of it for your sake, it will keep on giving. Jesus will keep on giving to you, but you have to come to him and receive him. Are you doing that? Have you done that? I'm sure you've had some pretty terrible presents over the years at Christmas. Some of you are probably holding on to them, ready to give them right now, either in knowledge or without the knowledge of the fact you're going to give a terrible present. But the greatest gift you could ever receive is Jesus. Because what we read this morning, Mary, Joseph, virgin birth, Bethlehem, a stable, a census, wise men, shepherds, saviour, Emmanuel, it was all for you. We often as Christians use the phrase, what's the reason for the season? Jesus is the reason for the season. Well, that's helpful. We probably say it to fight against the commercialism, those who want to take Jesus out of Christmas. But this morning we've looked at the question of why. Why did God give this prophecy? Why did he wait till he did? Why did it happen the way he did? And you know what? The reason for the season is actually you. You are the reason for the season. Hundreds of years ago, before Jesus came, God prophesied for you. He sent Jesus for you. It happened the way it did for you. You are the reason for the season. This all happened for you. I hope we never become blasé about that. I hope that never grows old. Let, let me encourage you in this Advent season, as in the lead up to Christmas, every time you open God's word and you read something to do with Christmas, something to do with Jesus, read it through the eyes of understanding that it was for you. Go home and read Matthew 1, 18 to 25. Remember, that was for you. That's why it happened. That's what's going on here. Let me pray.